This is episode one of our CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. This episode is going all the way back to 2004 at our annual enrichment conference titled Together in His Presence, Beholding the Wonder of the Trinity with speaker Bruce Ware. Session one has since been lost, but we have the rest of the sessions and we'll be putting them out on this podcast. So we're going to start with session two, The Wonder of the Father. Good morning to all of you. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And my, what beautiful days the Lord is giving us here. It is such a pleasure to be in this wonderful setting and uh, be with God's people and enjoy the afternoon before us that we'll have to be outside and enjoy the created order that is around us. What a delight. And what a delight to be together, to be able to contemplate together as a people of God the greatness the majesty, the fullness, the richness that is God, the true God, the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, our God. It just astonishes me uh, to, to realize, and I think of this often when I begin praying, when I pray, Father, to, to realize this God to whom I'm addressing is in fact the God. He, he is God over all. He is the creator of all that is. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And we address him as Father. Jesus said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yes, the Father over all, whose kingdom reigns in the universe, is in fact the Father who provides our daily bread, forgives our daily sins, delivers us from daily temptation, and leads us in the paths of righteousness. He is our Father. Now, we are going to focus this, this morning on God as Father, primarily in His role as Father of the Son, of the Eternal Son, that is, within the Trinity. But of course, there are enormous applications and implications as they relate to God as Father to us. And we'll get to that, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start with God as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me review with you just for a moment from last night. Do you remember I gave to you after that brief historical discussion on the Trinity and how we ended up with this doctrine as the early Christians wrestled with biblical teaching that yes, there is one God, and we cannot deny this. We must be faithful to the Bible in continuing to affirm what was affirmed in Judaism, in, in, the, in the faith of Israel, that there is one God. And yet, as 
Early Christians looked at the New Testament teaching. It was so clear to them that this God is not a simple God or unified, unitarian God, as we understand that term to be used in, in uh, some traditions of faith, a unitarian view of God. But rather, we must affirm that this one God is Father, for the Father is God. This one God is Son, for the Son is God. And this one God is Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit is God. And yet the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. So somehow we must affirm that one God manifests himself, exists in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The definition I gave you of the Trinity, do you remember last night? Perhaps you have it written in your notes. God's whole and undivided essence, all that is God, belongs equally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three persons of the Godhead. So the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God. They exist simultaneously as the one God, manifest in three persons, personal expressions of that one undivided essence. Each equally God, each fully God. Not three gods, but three persons. Equal in essence, but different in personal expressions of the one undivided and eternal divine nature. So then the Father is fully God. He's not one-third God. He is fully God. Yet it is not the Father alone who is fully God. He exists along with the Son and the Spirit, who each also is fully God. Difficult to comprehend, why did Christian theologians and, and uh, Christian leaders early in the history of the church arrive at this doctrine? Because of a conviction. It was the only way to put together and be faithful to everything that Scripture taught. We all know it would be a lot easier to scrap the doctrine. It is criticized by almost everybody. It's little understood within the church. But here we have 2,000 years now of church history in which this doctrine is affirmed. Why? Generation after generation after generation of thoughtful Christian people have arrived at the same conclusion. If you treat the Bible seriously, if you look carefully at what it teaches, you have to affirm there's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There's one God in three persons. Well, this morning, we want to ask the question, what distinguishes the Father as the Father in the Godhead? What distinguishes the Father from the Son and the Spirit? As each possess the same divine nature, obviously, what is common to them cannot distinguish what is true of the Father from the Son and the Spirit. What is common to them is their common divine nature, possessed fully by, by all three. So we can't say, oh, the Father, well, he has the attribute of omnipotence. That's what distinguishes him. Nope, guess what? 
The Son has that same attribute. The Spirit has that same attribute. Oh, well, the Father, He has the attribute of omniscience. He knows everything. Well, the Son has that, and the Holy Spirit has that. So we can't look at aspects of the nature of God as that which distinguishes the Father from the Son. Rather, we have to look at roles that the Father has in relation to the Son, or relationships that the Father has in relation to the Son and the Spirit. What, what distinguishes the Father in his particular role in relation to the Son and the Spirit and the relationships that he has with each of them? What characterizes then the distinct fatherly role and relationship that the Father has in relation to the Son and the Spirit? That's what we want to look at together. And really what I want to do with you is look at four of these distinguishing aspects of the Father's role and relationship, four items that we'll look at, and we'll look at scriptural teaching that supports this. And then following that, we're going to look at four applications that flow from this that I hope will be helpful to us uh, for our own souls and for our own relationship with God and with one another. So first, four aspects of the Father's unique role and relationship vis-a-vis -vis or in relation to the Son and the Spirit. First of all, the Father is supreme among the persons of the Godhead. The Father is supreme among the persons of the Godhead. Let me give you just a few passages to think of. I know these are familiar to you, but have we thought deeply about what they say? For example, in Psalm 2, this psalm begins, as you remember, with the nations raging against God. The peoples are in an uproar. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. And if you wonder, well, what does God do in response to the nations that are raging against Him? Is He in heaven, you know, kind of wringing His hands going, Oh, no, my goodness, all these people out there are against me. The whole thing is falling apart. What am I going to do? Is that how God responds? No, in Psalm 2, if you look, you can see it yourselves. In verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. It is pitiful. Now, this is a weak analogy, but it's sort of like when you're walking along, taking a walk outside, and some little miniature animal, dog, little, little tiny thing, yapping, comes at you. How seriously do you take this threat? Well, some of you perhaps might take it seriously. I'm not quite sure. But uh, th those of us who have been out and about a fair bit walking and running, those little ones, you realize one swift boot is all it takes and they're out of here. It's a weak analogy. Very, very weak. God who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, why does he laugh? Because of what he knows he will do to bring in this psalm judgment against all those who stand against him. How will he do this? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king. Notice the language. I put him there. 
I'm the one who has jurisdiction over the king who will have jurisdiction over the nations. Do you get the point? The father then is above, has supremacy over the king. I will install my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. So here is an evidence of the Father's role as supreme over the Son, who sends the Son, who puts the Son in his place as king, and of course we know that this will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. In Revelation 19, we read of this, where he will bring forth the wrath of God Almighty on the nations who stand against the Lord. He comes as the Son of the Father, the begotten of the Father, who comes to bring this judgment upon the world. Yes, the Father then is supreme over the Son, Consider another passage with me. A very, in fact, I began with this this morning. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. Matthew 6, 9 and 10. Pray this way, Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, doesn't this fit with Jesus' own statements many times? We'll talk about this this evening, actually, when we look at the Son in particular. Jesus' statements over and over and over during his earthly ministry. I have come to do the will of my Father. So he commands us to pray, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. So we, we acknowledge with Jesus... The Father has supremacy. Matthew eleven twenty five to twenty seven. Matthew eleven twenty five to twenty seven. Here Jesus has been preaching, performing miracles, and he has been rejected by the leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and he says in verse twenty twenty five then. At this time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. You see, again, Jesus' acknowledgement that the Father is the one who reigns over all. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and He reigns sovereignly over what is revealed, when it is revealed, to whom it is revealed. And so Jesus prays a prayer, honestly, my friends, most of us would have a very difficult time praying this. And it's only because we don't think the way Jesus thinks. We don't think in many, many cases the way the Bible is. What does he pray? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. 
That's not in our vocabulary. We praise God for the second part, and you've revealed it to babes. We like that part, but you've hidden these things. You have purposely kept from some people your truth. Well, he is sovereign, and Jesus acknowledges that the Father is the sovereign bestower of revelation or withholder of revelation, as he so chooses. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, a passage, again, we will come back to this evening in looking at the Son. It's a very important text. Paul writes in verse 28, When all things are subjected to the Son then the Son Himself will be subject to the One who subjected all things to Him. Now, who is the One who subjected all things to the Son? It's the Father. So the, the Son will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, that is the Father, so that God, the Father, may be all in all. Many times, by the way, Paul, in particular, uses God for the Father. Uh, a, a famous uh, uh, passage that, that I know you'll remember, you've probably heard it as the benediction uh, a number of times in a church service, 2 Corinthians uh, 13, verse 14, uh, where, where Paul says, May the love of God and, the, uh, and the, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you. Well, that love of God is the love of the Father. So we have Son, Father, Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian passage, but he uses here God as Father because, because the Father is Jesus, God, the one whom he glorifies, the one whom he seeks to honor himself, even though he is God in human flesh. He acknowledges the Father. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, similarly, so that God may be all in all, the Father receiving ultimate glory. Another passage very similar to that is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Remember the earlier verses talked about Christ. Uh, emptying himself and, and becoming one of us, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse 9, therefore God highly exalted him. Now even that, notice that. God, the Father, highly exalted the Son. Well, who has supremacy then? Clearly the Father does. God highly exalted him and gave to him, gave to him. So who has the supremacy? the Father, gave to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Now, presumably that's every knee but the Father's. Because the Father gave to him the name by which every knee would bow. Every knee but the Father's knee is implicit in that. He gave to him the name above every name that every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Period. Right? Is that where the passage ends? No. That every, that, that, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is the Father who is supreme in the Godhead. 
in, in the triune relationships of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father is supreme. And my, this gets expressed in so many ways in the New Testament if we have eyes to see them. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, at the beginning of this expression of praise to God, praise for all the blessings that God has brought upon us, how does Paul state it? Ephesians 1.3, blessed be God who brought us all the blessings. He could have said that, it would be true, but how does he say it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he just as he chose us in him. So he begins this list then. I, I take it there are six of these blessings in verses 4 to 14. He begins his list of blessings beginning with election. He chose us in Christ as the work of the Father through the Son. Who's the Redeemer in Ephesians 1, as you keep reading? Who redeemed us through His blood? It's the Father who is the Redeemer. Who redeemed us by the redeeming work of the Son whom He sent. Remember John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God gives His own Lamb his son, to be the one who will provide the sacrifice and payment necessary to redeem us. The father gets top billing, as it were, in Ephesians 1, from everything from election to our final sanctification. He is the one who is supreme. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, a few passages then that have indicated that the Father is supreme in the Godhead. Secondly, the Father is the grand architect, the wise designer of all that has occurred in the created order. He is the grand architect, the wise designer of everything that occurs in the created order. From initial creation through ultimate consummation and everything that happens in between, it is God the Father who is the architect, the designer, the one who stands behind as the, the one who plans and implements what he has chosen to do. I think the strongest passage, single passage that shows this is Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 12. If you'd turn there, please. Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 12. Here is in this list of blessings that we have from the Father as Paul is enumerating these. And here he says in verse 9, that God has made known to us the mystery of His will. The mystery of His will. According to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ. He purposed that Christ be the one who is the focal person. The, the, the center stage uh, 
person who brings this about. It is in his son that this happens. But who designed it? Who, who, who willed it to be? Who purposed it? It was the Father. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. And here we have the Father again. The purpose of the Father who works all things after the counsel of his will. Wow, what a statement. Do you agree with me that this is comprehensive? This is indicating everything that happens from the beginning to the end in all of human history is done by thee, look at the words, verse 11, according to the purpose of God who works everything after the counsel of his will. And if you're wondering, by the way, whether in verse 11, all things really means all things, some people have wondered that. Does it really mean everything? Everything is worked according to the counsel of your will in, in verse 11? All you have to go back do is go back to verse 10, and you see that all things in verse 10 clearly is absolutely everything. Look again, verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of, here it comes, all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. So isn't it clear in verse 10 that everything in the heavens and the earth, that's a, an expression, an idiom, for, for saying absolutely everything. Nothing is left out, as it were. Everything is summed up in Christ, verse 10, and according to that, then in verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things. I, I think it's a real stretch to say that in verse 11, the all things is all of a sudden curtailed, all of a sudden limited and restricted, when in verse 10, it is so clear, it encompasses everything. And what does it say in verse 11? He works his purpose, he, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So everything in heaven and earth, everything from initial creation to ultimate, eternal life in heaven and hell, everything is worked according to the, the will of God, uh, accomplishing his purpose that he has for all of creation. So yes, he is the grand architect, the wise designer of everything that happens. Similarly, not, not as explicit, but similarly, in Colossians 1, verse 12, Colossians 1, 12, Paul says that he is giving thanks to the Father for all that we have and hope for, as you look at the verses that follow in Colossians 1 from verse 12 on, it is everything that happens. It is our redemption. It is creation. It, it is reconciliation. If you keep reading through that passage, you realize Paul gives thanks, gives thanks to the Father in verse 12 for everything that occurs in human life. He is the one who has designed and willed and purposed 
everything in all of creation. The Father, then, is the grand architect, the wise designer of everything that occurs in the created order. Third, third, he not only is supreme over all in the Godhead, he not only is the wise designer and grand architect, third, the Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. The Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. The obvious verse that comes to my mind in thinking about this is in James 1.17, where James tells his readers, don't ever think when you're tempted that you are being tempted by God, for God does not tempt anyone. He himself is not tempted. Rather, if you want, if, when you think of God, this is how you ought to think. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So where does every good gift originate? From the Father. What, even the gift of the Son who provides our salvation? Yes, from the Father. Oh, the, the gift of the Spirit who works in our hearts to transform us, uh, to, to gift us, to, to minister in the body of Christ? From the Father. Every gift is given from the Father. Or another great passage that also articulates this in powerful ways is Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? Asked the Apostle Paul. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son. So of whom are we speaking then? The Father. The Father. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? All things. Every good thing. You know, and this just, this just expands upon the promises throughout the Bible. You remember in, in Psalm 34, the young lion lacks and suffers hungers, and suffers hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. My, what confidence there is in this. What, what hope there is to realize God is for us to such an extent that he has given us his son and the one who has given us his son will not fail to give to us everything that is good for us. I, I've used this as an analogy. Again, analogies, anytime they have to do with God, are so weak and pitiful, but they help nonetheless. They help nonetheless. Suppose a, a very wealthy uncle of yours, enormously wealthy uncle of yours, decided to build for you a mansion, and he spared no expense in this, in this home that he built. Absolutely beautiful home, spacious, state-of-the-art, everything inside of it. And after everything was done, you sat down for your first meal uh, with all this new furniture and everything that was in this home. You sat down at the meal, and you noticed that on the table there wasn't a salt and pepper shaker. Do you think that your uncle would begrudge you a salt and pepper shaker if you happened to say to him, uh, Uncle, I'm just noticing we don't have a salt and pepper shaker here. Do you think the uncle who built this home with all that is in it, furnished it lavishly, would withhold from you a salt and pepper shaker to put on your table? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? To whom do we owe our heartfelt thanksgiving? To our Father. To the Father who sent the Son and provided this for us. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Fourth and last of these aspects of the distinctiveness or the uniqueness of the Father's role within the Trinity. Fourth, though He is supreme, though the Father is supreme, yet He often provides and works through His Son and Spirit. Though the Father is supreme, He often works through, works and provides through the Son and the Spirit. This is an amazing thing to me. I, I, I just am astonished when I think of this. Though the Father is supreme, though He has in the Trinitarian order the place of highest authority, the, the, the place of highest honor. Remember Philippians 2? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even though he has the place of highest honor in the Trinity, yet he chooses to do his work in many, many cases through the Son and through the Spirit rather than doing the work unilaterally. Rather than saying, Son and Spirit, just stand to the side here and watch me work. Watch me do it. After all, I'm on top. After all, I'm the supreme one in this relationship. And so stand aside and watch me work. Rather, here's what the Father does. He says, I want you to watch my work through my Son. Look at my Son. Notice my Son. Look at the marvelous obedience He has given to me. Look at the greatness of His grace extended. Look at His wisdom and power manifest. Look at what the Son provides you. In Ephesians 1, we won't take time to read through all of it, but in Ephesians 1, after Paul had begun, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, then every single one of those blessings, every single one of them, you count them as you look through those verses, comes to us how? In Christ, just as He chose us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He predestined us to adoption as sons in Jesus Christ. He redeemed us through His blood. Every one of the blessings that comes to us, comes to us in His Son. It's as though He says, I want to put my Son on display. I want you to see in Him my own nature, my own character. Remember John 1, 14? 
we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at my son. He's just like his dad. My own, my own father is sitting right here in the front. And I am so grateful for a human father to whom I can look and want to be like. He has been a marvelous father. Continues to be. I shouldn't say that in the past tense, should I, Dad, with you <laughs> sitting right here? <laughs> and again, human analogies pale. Here, here is the son of the father who exhibits to the world the glory of his father. Look at my son, he constantly says. Now, notice in this one other thing that's interesting. How little is made of the spirit. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this. We'll talk about this. It's an amazing thing. How little is made of the spirit. Where is the spirit in all of this? You know, it, and, and it's not as though the Spirit's out there going, hey, hey, wh don't forget me, I'm here, over here, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll get there. Oh, it is just incredible. But, but here you have a Spirit who does not want to be front and center stage. He, he is back behind the blue curtain. Maybe that's not the best analogy to use this morning. <laughs> Human analogies fail, don't they? Yeah, and, and sometimes worse than others. He's behind the blue curtain performing all kinds of things, but he, he does not want front billing. He does not want to be publicly noticed what does he want to do? Look at the Son. Look at Jesus. He works in us to glorify the Son. So, you know, here it's an amazing thing, an amazing thing. In the Trinity, here you have the, the Father who is in the position of supreme authority and the, and the Spirit who is third on the list. You know, sometimes called the forgotten member of the Trinity. I think that's partly true because of the Bible. You know, the Bible doesn't put extraordinary emphasis on the Spirit. Now, it puts more emphasis on the Spirit than most of us have understood and have embraced in biblical teaching. There, there is some enormously important teaching regarding the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, you know, this, the Spirit clearly is in a role of support. Support to the Son. Uh, he, both during his own earthly ministry and now. Support to the Son. So here you have from the Father who is supreme and authority over the Son saying, look at my Son. You have the Spirit who is third on the list, who is under the Son in terms of position in the Godhead. And what does he do? Look at my Son. So here's what I want you to see in this is the father refuses pride of place, refuses the insistence upon being noticed first and foremost in order for us to see 
His work manifests not unilaterally, but in His Son. Such humility is manifest in not taking pride of place. And then the Spirit, who, who could be begrudging about this, he could be jealous, envious, a, a bit resentful, quite frankly. Why does the sun always get the center stage? Why not spirit? He doesn't do this. He, he, he so fully accepts his role third in the Godhead and rejoices in, celebrates lifting up the sun. Wow, it's an amazing thing. And j just a little hint of some things we'll look at more as we look at sun and spirit. Yes, the Father often provides what he does through the sun and through the spirit. It is not as though he can't work unilaterally, but he chooses to work in this way, in which he involves this, the Son and the Spirit. Uh, it, now, there are some of his works, for example, I mentioned to you before, some of his works like the work of salvation, where it must be all three involved for salvation to occur. And I won't rehearse that again for you now. I talked about that briefly last night. But all three have to be there. The Father has to be the judge. The Son has to be recipient of the Father's judgment. The Spirit working in the human Jesus to bring him to the point of the cross, obedient, sinless, as he gives his life an offering. So all three are involved. But what about creation? Did the Father have to involve the Son and the Spirit in creation? No, but he did. No, but he did. So, so in the New Testament, who, in the Old Testament, who is the creator? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we would almost, almost all of us, looking back now from Trinitarian, you know, with, with a Trinitarian perspective, we would look back at that Old Testament teaching and say, well, that was the Father. That was the Father who did this. But then we come to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. The Son, the Word. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Son did it. Colossians 1.16, by Him. And really, if you look at Colossians 1 carefully, 16 comes after 12. Okay. Verse 12 says, we give thanks to the Father. And then these things are worked out as the work of the Father done through the Son, just like in Ephesians 1. Very similar. And what do we find in verse 16 then of Colossians 1? By him all things are created. Whether things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things have been created by him and for him the Son. Did he have to do that? And the Spirit is involved. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is hovering over, over the, the, the unformed created order. So here we have creation done by the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Did the Father have to do it this way? No. My friends, can you see 
what a, an incredible example this is of sharefulness. Sharefulness. Generosity. In, in many ways, what we see here of the Father choosing not to do work unilaterally, but doing it through the Son, through the Spirit, just extends to his relationship with us, doesn't it? Does God need us to do his work? Does God need us to minister to others so they grow in Christ? Does God need us to proclaim the gospel so that others hear the good news and are saved? I hope you have the right answer to those questions in your minds. The answer is no. He doesn't need any of us to do any of this. But let's take what, what I'm doing right now, this participation in the work of God I'm doing right now with you, which I trust before God, is assisting sanctification and growth among God's people. Is my role in this necessary to God? Absolutely not. Just think of it this way. Do you remember when we see Christ, 1 John 3, when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Do you realize that all of the progressive sanctification that happens through life incrementally will all of a sudden be finished like that when we see him? So I, I ask the question, then does he have to do it this way through people like me and you? And the answer is no. He could just do it. He could just speak the word and it would be done. His people would be holy. He's going to do that in the end. So why does he do it this way? Because he is shareful. Generous. He, he, he loves and delights in giving to others and empowering them to do it a portion of his work. His work. He could just do it, but he says, no, I want you, 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 to participate in, be a part of, share in my work. So what we see happening at the human level in relationship with the Father happens first in the Trinity. The Trinity is the paradigm, the prototype of what it means for the one who is on top, choosing willingly to share the joy of the work of ministry with others. But here, here's another example of it I, that, that, that uh, I, I just I revel in. We have two daughters, and, uh, and God has given us the, the privilege of becoming parents of these children. And uh, I think about this as a theologian uh, differently perhaps than some do. And I want to share this thought with you. Here's the thought. God made the original pair 
Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed in him the breath of life, and then he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a woman, a helper suitable for you. So he takes the rib from the side of Adam and forms her into a woman. Adam awakes, exclaims, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The two become one. And what does God tell them? You be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, you have now the privilege of bringing into existence image of God persons. I created the first ones. You do the rest. Wow. This is why I think God made sex to be as astonishingly wondrous as it is. He connects that with image of God reproduction. Image of God procreation. Procreation. We have the privilege of creating. He didn't have to do it this way. He could say, I'm going to make every one of them. Just watch me, I'll do it. But he doesn't do this. This is the Father. The Father is shareful. He does his work through the Son and through the Spirit, and that spills over into how he relates to us. Four aspects that we have looked at of the uniqueness of the Father in the relationship of the Godhead. The Father is supreme among the persons of the Godhead. The Father is the grand architect and wise designer of everything in the created order. The Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And though the Father is supreme, yet He does His work. He provides and works through the Spirit and the Son, amazingly. Okay, now four applications that I want to draw out with you together as we bring this to a close. Four applications. First, marvel at the wisdom and goodness and care and thoroughness, the wisdom, the goodness, the care, the thoroughness with which the Father exercises his authority. He is always infinitely wise. He is always infinitely good. He is always infinitely careful. He is always infinitely thorough in how he exercises his authority. He can be trusted. He can be worshipped. He is worthy of our highest esteem because he exhibits himself with such remarkable wisdom, care, goodness, thoroughness in how he does his work. We should marvel at this and see in the Father then a pattern. We'll never succeed in being like him as we should, but we should see in him the pattern of what any of us who is in a position of authority 
ought to seek to be like, to exercise authority with wisdom, with goodness, not self-serving. Goodness, care, thoroughness. Be like your father, those of you who have the privilege of exercising authority in relationships over others. In this room, every married man is in that category. Every married man is in this category. You have rightful authority in your homes, with your wife, and if God has blessed you, with your children. Exercise your authority with wisdom, goodness, carefulness, thoroughness to the well-being of those under your charge. Be like your father in increasing measure. Can any of us be like that this moment perfectly? No, but should that stop us from keeping in view the goal toward which we seek to become, the, 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 the perfection that we seek more and more to become like? should never diminish that from, from our side. We should never turn our failure into an excuse not to see the vision of what we ought to be. May God help us to see the Father and marvel at this. Numbers 2 flows out of this first point. Learn from God the Father what true fatherhood really is like. Learn from God the Father what true fatherhood really is like. You know, there is a very widespread movement afoot these days to remove from the Bible, I, I mean in Bible translation even, remove from the Bible gendered language in a variety of ways. So some of them have to do with you and me. And uh, the, if, you, if you haven't been warned yet about the TNIV, today's New International Version, be warned. Uh, the whole Bible is coming out in 2005, next year. They hope to have it out in January or so. And all I can say, my friends, is uh, th this is a Bible to grieve over for what scholars are doing to twist and distort biblical statements to present as translations for English readers and they don't know better because they're reading their Bibles and they distort at the human level. Now, what is afoot is more than that. Give it 10 years and you will see another edition, the, the, new, the newest revised today's New International Version perhaps, that will excise from the Bible masculine language that pertains to God. He is no longer father. Why? What is behind this? Well, part of what's behind it is our culture-wide, human race-wide antipathy for authority. We despise authority. Why do we despise authority? Because of sin. Sin wants, works within us to, want to, 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 to create in us a desire to be in charge, 
We want to be in charge. I did it my way is the theme song of hell. I may have mentioned that to you last year. I'm not sure. But it is. It's the theme. I did it my way. This is the heart of sin. The, 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 the fist raised in God's face. Psalm 2 that we read about a moment ago. You know, the, the nations are raging against God. Defiant against Him. Well, this is the heart of every one of us as sinners. So part, part of it is just the pervasiveness, but in our culture, it's given, it's given a virtue. This, this self-ism, self-esteem, self-attainment. It's, it's become virtuous to be sinful in our culture by, by virtue of seeking what I want above all else. So part of it is this culture-wide antipathy for authority, but here's the other part of it is there are many, many women who have had horrible upbringings with human fathers that have been for them a source of unspeakable pain. And so, some think in order to minister to women, we must remove from the Bible the reference to God as Father, because that is a hindrance. It's a barrier for these women to get to know God. And my friends, this would be such an enormous mistake. This is not the solution to this problem. It, it is not to endorse these dear women's views of fatherhood that they have arrived at through their earthly fathers as horrible. It's not to endorse that as real fatherhood and say, so we can't talk about father because that's bad. Instead, what we have to say is to, to these dear ladies, I've got wonderful news for you. There is a true father who is drastically different in many important respects from the father you had. Meet, will you? the true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And commend to all of us, but to these women included, the real Father, the Father who is wise and good and careful and thorough in His care and watch care and provision and protection of His children. Let's relearn the paradigm of what Father is from the Father in heaven. Here, here's my second application on this point. It's just a, an extension of this. Relearning what Father is from God the Father. I think many of us who are fathers, I'm speaking now to men in particular, but it, it applies also to mothers in, in, a, in, in a secondary way, but to fathers in particular, we can learn what it means to be fathers to our children by observing how God fathers us. And there, there's a lot to this. I mean, there's a conference in this, to be honest with you. There is so much that is in that one statement. We can learn what it is to be a human father, how, how to father our own children by observing how God the Father fathers us. In summary, here is what I see in the Bible, how God fathers us. On the one hand, 
On the one hand, God as Father insists on our respect. Does he not? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In Malachi chapter 1, God says to the disobedient, rebellious children of Israel, and if I am your father, where is my respect? It's verse 6. Malachi 1. One thing we learn about God as father is he requires of his people that they respect him, that they honor him, that they obey him. We do our children no service, no good service in their lives by allowing them permissiveness, allowing them to be disobedient. I was with a family recently. I, you don't know them. There's no point in my saying any more than that. A family, Christian family recently, a pastor's family recently, whom I observed over and over and over. It was the fifth time the mom or dad said, Johnny, Susie, do this, that they meant it. And the kids knew it. It was the fifth time. And the way they knew it was because the fifth time they were irritated because they'd said it four other times and Johnny or Susie hadn't done it. Well, that's because Johnny or Susie had already learned they don't mean it the first four times. And so they wait till the voice raises, till, till the irritation is evident. Then they listen. Shame on us. Four, training our children to think that's how you respond to authority. That's, that's how you are to respond to one who commands you from a position of authority. Especially when that one who commands us from his position of authority is God. It's God. So, on the one hand, God fathers us by expecting our obedience, and disciplining us when we don't. That's half the picture. Here's the other half. God fathers us by being lavish, lavish, generous, oh my, just, just extravagant in his care and love and provision and protection for his people. Remember, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Lavish, generous, extravagant care for his children. Do your children know how much you as a father and a mother love them do, do, do they know from not just words, but from time and attention and, and, and playfulness and, and uh, devotions at the table? Do they know how much you care for them? Father your children the way God fathers us. Learn what true father is by looking at the father. Third, third point of application. Marvel at the way in which the Father delegates to others the work that he is responsible to do. Marvel at the way in which the Father delegates to others the work he is responsible to do. 
I don't know about you, but I find this very difficult. I, I am a perfectionist type of person, and I like things done my way, which is the right way. Amen. All right. <laughs> Some of you out there can relate to this. And uh, it, I, I just find it so difficult to apply this principle and, and to, and to not, not only let someone else in on the work that I'm doing, but invite them knowing, you know, it, it may not be done exactly as I, as I would do it, but here's the greater value that is served. The greater value is others participate in the common work that is now ours. Others participate in the common work that is now ours. That's the greater value. Here's the father who could do it himself in many, many cases, but instead he says, I will do this work through my son. And not only this, let's just take it one step further. And when the father does this work through the son, who gets the honor and the glory in it? The son ultimately then to the father. But the son, he, it's like the, the father says, put the spotlight on my son, shine it on my son. Look at my son. How many of us in positions of authority have a heart to put the spotlight on our subordinates and say, look at the work of this youth minister. Look at the work of this music minister. Look at the work of this Sunday school teacher. Look at the work of this uh, pastor of, to the elderly visiting in the hospital. How many of us have a heart to do that? Well, let's marvel that this is how the Father operates. He is cheerful, he delegates, and he rejoices. And fourth, and finally, marvel at the Father's longing for the Son to share his glory while he retains ultimate supremacy. Marvel at the Father's longing to have his Son share his glory while he retains the ultimate supremacy. Now here, here is the trick in this. Here is the father longing to have his son glorified. And yet the father doesn't because he is the father. He is supreme in the Trinity. He doesn't then pretend as though he's not on top. He doesn't pretend as though he's not the one in charge. And so there is an ongoing insistence, as we see in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there is an insistence on keeping rightful place in place. Rightful positions of authority respected. So while there is deference paid, spotlight put on another, this does not result for the father in saying, oh, then, then because the son did this, don't look at me. No, he retains the place of ultimate supreme authority over all and is honored for that. 
Which, of course, you, you know what this means then. This is the flip side of what we talked about a moment ago. The youth minister, the music minister, the, 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 whoever, the Sunday school teacher, who is spotlighted, should be like Jesus. Who does what? As the spotlight is put upon him, what does he say? I am doing the will of my Father. I am seeking to honor in all that I do my Father. And so there is this reciprocal relationship in which Father bestows upon the Son glory and Son rightly focuses our attention back to Father who rightly deserves ultimate honor and glory. Is there a lesson in here for us in terms of our relationships with one another in ministry, in the home, in the church? May God help us. The Father then is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, supreme in authority, supreme over all, but a Father who is so good, so wise, so generous, so lavish in what He does, doing it through others, but ultimately to His glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to think more carefully about what it means for you to be the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we honor you as God. And we pray, Holy Father, that you would grant us ears to see, ears to hear, and eyes to see, and hearts to embrace these truths from your word, that we truly might marvel at you, give glory to you, but also, Lord, through this, be changed as people to represent better what you are like in our relationships with one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.